Welcome to Gross Anatomy. Welcome, Dr. Jeffrey Toll. Thank you. So, uh, so welcome to uh, Gross Anatomy, where we discuss the sights, smells, and sounds of medicine and how it relates to pop culture, movies, TV, and the world around us. And you look so much better than I do. Like you, you got your name on there. You're like perfectly framed. You got some cool book. I mean, you look like a real doctor. No, and I look like a schmendrick. Your lighting is good. Right. He's got it all. I'm coming. I think we should go to your <laughs> office next time when we do our podcast. Yeah. I yeah. got a broken bed in the background. So Exactly. Yeah. So look, I'm Dr. The ocean view here too. I don't know if you can Ooh. see it. Whoa, looking look good. That. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I have um I have some paper. Um so I'm Dr. Jason <laughs> Cohen and I'm joined by my co-host Lauren Taylor. And today we have Dr. Jeffrey Toll, who I'm thrilled. Thank you so much to yes. to do okay. this with us. Thank you. So so how long have you been in town? Like, I, if you don't mind, I, I mean, we'll get to everything, but I, I want to well, just I find out about you a little bit. In town? I've been as a doctor. doctor. As a doctor. So I did my residency at Cedars. So I finished, oh, wow. I've, I've been at Cedars since 2000 and, uh, let's see, 14. And I've been in practice since 2017. Wow. So you're a child. Yeah, 36. <laughs> so you look amazing and you're young and I'm just so darn envious. Holy crap. Um, and you grew up in LA though. Yeah. So I, I grew up uh, in Beverly Hills. I was born at Cedars actually. Nice. Nice. They I think I saw my, the Jeff Toll room actually. They saved my life at Cedars twice when I was a kid. That's actually why I wanted to be a doctor. Oh, why? So, what happened? So I had a ruptured appendicitis age 11. Uh, David Familia fixed me up on that one. Oh, wow. Amazing. At age 11? Yeah. And then um, maybe I was 12, 11 or 12. Laparoscopic then, or with an old-fashioned? Uh, oh, old school. Old school. Old school. Nice. And then I actually had a bowel obstruction as a complication from adhesion. Basically, the appendicitis ruptured. It was really bad and probably messy in there. Had a bowel obstruction, so I had a second surgery. Maybe like During the same months. admission? No, no, no. Maybe like four months later. Oh, wow. And so I was in and out of the hospital as a kid, like seventh grade, eighth grade, a bunch of times. That's why I wanted to be a doctor. Oh, man. So you have a big up and down I, cut? What, what kind of cut do you I have? have so I have a, yeah, so I have this, you know, small uh, appendicitis. Uh, uh, the McBurney incision? I have, I have a... Vertical ventral incision there. Yeah. Wow! So you, you got some good good war wounds. Yeah, and then when I saw David Familia, I, th- I guess it was my f- intern year of residency, and I tr- told him what happened. He didn't recognize me. No? Did you show him your score and say, "Remember this"? <laughs> I wanted. <to. laughs> wow, that's pretty amazing. So, and that's what got you made you want to be a doc. Yeah. Theaters is really home for me in a lot of ways. So I was born there. That happened there. What were you going to say, Lauren? I was going to say, do, are either of your parents doctors? Because we have a lot of doctors on, and like usually no one doctors. parent is a doctor. No doctors in the family. No doctors in the family? Okay. So it's purely Larry Siegler. Yeah. What? Two lawyers. Two. My parents are lawyers. Two lawyers. Both of whom oh. told me not to be a lawyer. <laughs> right. Did they tell you to be a doctor, though? No, I think that was my own thing, just from note that, you know, being my experience as a kid. 
And then where'd you go to college? So I got an academic scholarship to USC. So I went to USC. Um, and then I went to, to I at first wasn't sure what I wanted to do. In college, I thought I was going to be a doctor. I did some of the pre-med stuff, realized it was a lot of work, and kind of got sidetracked a little there. I did some other stuff. Ultimately, I went to Jefferson Med School back in Philly. What was your major in college? I was a business manager. And did you initially go the business route for a little? Yeah. So I was doing some like real estate finance stuff for like a year or two and then hated it. And then finished. Hated it. Finished the pre-med stuff actually. Yeah. So, um, so you went to med school and did you have any idea what you were interested in? I mean, come on, you, Dave Familia did your appendix. So did you want to be a surgeon? So in a way I, I thought I wanted to be a surgeon to be honest when I started. Yeah. But it, just, it didn't play to my strong suits, I think, as much. I, I'm really extroverted, people person. I like talking to people, spending time in the room with people. So everything um, I'm not, basically. And I'm also, yeah, and I'm more big picture, less detail-oriented type of thinker in general. Right. So right. I'm good. My strong suits are I'm good at problem-solving, kind of taking big things and kind of like, distilling it down into solvable problems more than being meticulous. Surgery was not what I was meant to do. Um, right. And I realized that medicine is better, more what I'm meant to do. So. Yeah. So, so you decided not to do surgery, decided to do internal medicine. But and how does that, uh, how did you get to own your own private practice at such a young age? Like how does, how did that develop? So, yeah, so I think I felt that the way medicine is generally speaking done in a, in a big practice just isn't the way I wanted to practice. So meaning when you have to see 20 people a day, when you're in a huge rush, um, you can't give great care. So you're just kind of like checking boxes and hi, bye. And it just wasn't the way I wanted to practice. So I looked at potentially joining a bigger practice. I looked at doing hospitalist work or outpatient work and ultimately What's hospitalist work. What is so, that? So hospitalist work is basically when an internal medicine doctor um, takes care of patients in the hospital. So, you know, someone comes to the hospital for really any problem you can think of an infection, um, you know, pneumonia, kidney failure, heart, chest pain, a stroke, a surgical problem even. And there's, the, the hospitalist is the internist who oversees the care and gets all the various specialists involved and uh, make sure that the person gets fixed, diagnosed, fixed, and out of the hospital safely. And then uh, what happens when the patient goes home? Then they go back and see whatever doctor they were seeing and you never see them again. So there's no, there's no continuity. You just kind of, you're there during that stay in the hospital. And then, so it's really more like a punch the clock day job more than it is a career. Hospitalists don't have offices typically, right? So um, I just thought I wanted to kind of create a a different type of practice than I guess is really available. So it was interesting when I started, which was insane. So my, I guess my second year of residency, I met Jeremy Fine, who's a concierge doctor in Century City that you know well, also trained theaters, also local guy. Yeah. Um, what happened was he had a a patient in the ICU and I was on my ICU rotation. Um, and I was taking care of the patient and the family throughout the time. 
And then each day, he, you know, I would update him on what was going on with the case. Um, and we really kind of hit it off. And I was just kind of asking him how his practice worked and what was going on. And we just stayed in touch, sort of. And then maybe um, bef- at the beginning of my last year of residency, he started asking me, hey, what would you think about come? I'm, I'm thinking about building out the office. Do you have any interest in coming into the space? And we hadn't really figured out a way where were you going to be sort of just sharing space and overhead? Where were you going to be, you know, the same practice where he was hiring me? And we were trying to sort of iron that out. Um, and what we ultimately decided on was um, I would come in and share space. We wouldn't necessarily have him be hiring me per se. I was just going to pay rent and stuff like that. Um, and then with the idea that I could do a lot of extra work for him. So the way his practice works is he has a very small number of patients who. Um, he does all sorts of things like house calls. He's available 24-7 by cell phone. Um, the office coordinates and manages all the care. So they do, in addition to being someone's doctor, you're also really coordinating all the care for someone, including if someone needs home nursing hired, home labs done, you just take care of everything. So some of that work I could really do for him when I first started, when you know he needed a hand to do an extra house call here and there. Um, and then uh, I just sort of emulated what he was doing and offered some of the same services. Um, it's been interesting along the way we grew and, you know, the beginning was a little slow to grow. And, you know, as you get more patients, that gets you more patients, honestly, people refer you. Yeah. Um, and then I had a couple of interesting things happen along the way. I sort of inherited a, a practice from someone who retired. Who was that? So do you know Jay Rudin? Yeah. So Jay, I had, so when I first started, you know, p- part of what's part of the reason why most young doctors don't start their own practice is it's impossible. So when you That's start, cool. yeah, it's impressive. you have a whole lot of overhead and you have zero patients. Yeah. You have to be willing to really hustle. So what I was doing was I was asking every internist I could find if you ever need me to cover your inpatients, if you ever need me to cover on the weekend. So I had like three or four or five different guys I was covering. I had concierge guys, not necessarily just anyone, you know, I I would round on their inpatients. So I would, I would, if they were using a hospital, like if they had been using ISP or whatever, I offered, Hey, I'm happy to see your inpatients. Right. If they wanted coverage on a weekend. So I ended up getting, over the first year or so, I had like three or four guys I was seeing their inpatients, and I had some surgeons admitting to me. So my hosp- my inpatient revenue was enough to kind of keep in business while I was building up my outpatient practice. That's great. Um, and then unfortunately, Jay, who we became really close, um, got you know ha- got sick actually and had to retire, mm-hmm. and he basically asked me to take on his patients. And so that and was his office in the same location, the same building. Same building. And so I ended up hiring his, his staff on who already knew his patients. Um, and then that really kind of overnight made me have like a full practice. Was, he, was his practice a concierge-based practice? It, it was sort of mixed. So he's not a membership-based, but he's a, he doesn't take insurance, so he's cash-based. Right. And so, so it's a high-end. It's a high-end yeah. What's funny about concierge medicine is it's basically old fashioned, old time medicine, what it used to be. Right? Yeah, explain it to our audience a little bit. Like 
a membership? What is that? What is so that? I, I, I ended up with sort of a blended system because of the way this happened. So I'll sort of explain both concepts. Okay. So the, the concept of a true concierge practice or, or a membership-based practice is, so instead of charging what Medicare gives you, which is about 100 bucks per encounter, you charge someone an annual membership fee which includes all the visits for the year, all the labs and everything that you're doing for the year. You don't charge them per visit. You just charge them per year with the idea being instead of having, let's say, 2,000 patients where you're nickel and diming 100 bucks a time and seeing 25 patients a day, you are charging a reasonable amount to have many less patients, let's say a few hundred patients as opposed to a few thousand patients. Okay. So you're really available. You, you have big breaks in your day every day for same day visits to jump on the phone quickly so the care is much better you know the patients inside and out you know like i know what meds my patients are on without looking at their chart a lot of them because they're my concierge patients you know right right i I talk to them all the time um and so not only can you take better medical care of them but you get to know i mean you become close to you they can text you you know the whole family it's a lot it's just it's better care. And so it's old fashioned medicine. That's what's funny. Yeah. yeah. So, so what, so that's like a pure concierge model. The fee for service model is sort of like what the old school method was where you build per visit, but they used to bill enough per visit that you could see more like six to 10 people a day, as opposed to like 20 to 30 people a day. Mm-hmm. And so the truth is that, Obviously, unfortunately, not everyone can afford to do it. So, you know, yeah, but the care is obviously better. Have you ever had two patients at the same time who like say, I totally need you? Yeah. And what do you do? How do you how do you juggle that? Well, I think the whole point is that your your day isn't locked into this rigid. I have nine to nine fifteen, nine fifteen to nine thirty, nine thirty. It's like I have nine to nine thirty blocked out for one patient and then I have nothing for 45 minutes and then I have one more and then during right. those 45 minutes I can return tax calls but don't you occasionally have like a patient who says hey I want you to come with me to so-and-so appointment or da 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 or not really um not necessarily go with to appointments so much I will typically talk to the specialist on the phone the same day or later mm-hmm. that day not necessarily go to the appointments have you traveled with patients at all I d- what have you traveled with patients at all or, or had um, patients fly you places? No, I've never done that. We do a lot of house calls. We do a lot of, I, I organize. So like right now there's a lot of coronavirus stuff going on. So a lot, so let's say, let's say you want to have a, a barbecue on a Sunday and you're planning on inviting 20 people. So I'll end up testing all 20 people on Friday. Wow. Oh, wow. So that's a new thing that's going on, eh? So since you, since you got us into it, so what, um, what's the false positive, false negative rates on those tests? Yeah. So if we're talking about the PCR test, so with Picker? The, what? Picker? So, yeah, exactly. So there's two types of uh, coronavirus tests. One is where we're actually testing. The question we're asking is what do you have the virus right now? Right. That is called the PCR test. And with the qualifier of you got a good sample, meaning you... So how do you do that? Yeah, I've, I've heard about that. I haven't had it done, but... 
whether swab with a Q-tip up high up here or the back of the throat, they're basically equal. Um, I heard it's pretty painful. It's uncomfortable. I wouldn't. Have you had it done? Yeah. Yeah. And I heard like if it's done well, it's It's pretty uncomfortable. Like I've heard some people say, oh my God, right? It makes you gag. It's uncomfortable. Right. Okay. Um, And you have to do both nostrils or or doesn't? Set it up there. Good. Okay. Um, So the test itself is testing for like traces of the virus's RNA. So it's extremely accurate. If you have really any, it's going to be positive. So if you're doing it right, it's almost a hundred percent sensitive, assuming you got a good sample. Yeah. Right. But, but that's the big thing with those, at least that I've heard is, you know, they're not necessarily getting adequate samples, right? So that's can be a problem, but assuming you got a good sample, they're, they're right. And we know for sure if you're doing it, they're getting, you're getting good samples. I have, so basically because I had already been, um, having a lot of home-based services. I have like two or three nurses that do various stuff for me, but because of the coronavirus and this big influx of need and kind of like every, you know, like I said, I grew up here. So any, all these people in their thirties, forties know me, they just text me like, Hey, I need a Corona test, even if they're not my patient. Right. I was getting swamped with this. So I actually started a separate company now to hire full-time nurses that are just full-time doing actually Corona testing, home testing. Wow, that's great. I feel like your business education really came into play because that's really smart. Like you- yeah, I really enjoy the business. I think that's what I, you know, when a lot of, so I, I speak to the, I do some like teaching with the residents and stuff here and there. And sometimes they'll call me and ask me about, you know, starting our own practice or whatever. I think it's partially, I really enjoyed the, the journey of the practice. Mm-hmm. So figuring troubleshooting, figuring out how to make things run smoother, run better. I enjoy that part as much as the medicine part, or at least I I love both both of them. Yeah, I think I wouldn't be happy just running the practice, and I wouldn't be happy just seeing the patients. I really do like both. So mm-hmm. yeah. So this kind of just naturally happened. I just had so much demand. In order to meet the demand, I needed an extra nurse. Um, and then realize I'm not even advertising and I can barely handle the demand. What if I advertise a little bit? So we started doing that and now we're, it's like, we're really busy. It's been amazing. So, so, so for these parties, for example, so you're doing the nasal swab and you're doing the antibody. What are you? So people, if they want the antibody test, so the antibody test is a little more complicated. So this one is another one I try to explain and I'll see if this makes sense to you. So the antibody test, is, is difficult because in the general population, and to be clear about the, what the antibody means is the if you have antibodies, theoretically, you're immune for some period of time, be that six months. And we don't know yet. Definitely, we don't know yet because it's a new virus, but probably for some period of time, you're immune. Um, so the problem is in the general population, I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of 3% of people in LA have been exposed to the virus, and you would expect if you had a perfect test, three out of every hundred tests would be positive. Okay. Mm -hmm. If your test has 3% of the time, a false positive. So if it's 95, 97% accurate, let's say, then three out of every hundred tests are going to be false positives. So we just said three out of every hundred, if the penetrance of the disease is 3%, 
I hate statistics. I hated it. So, but the way to like, yeah, I no, hated it. It's going to break down real easy. So 3% of people have it and it's a perfect yeah. test. Perfect. Three out of every hundred tests you would expect to be positive. Mm-hmm. Bottom line is if you test everyone, including people who never had symptoms, mm-hmm. that's why they keep saying on the news, it's 50%. It's only 50% correct mm-hmm. because if it's 97% accurate, three out of a hundred are false positives. You expect three out of a hundred true positives. Therefore it's only 50% accurate. It's useless. If someone thinks they had it before, if the pretest probability is high, then it's a useful test. Then if it's positive, it's probably truly positive. Mm-hmm. But what about false negative? Most of them are hundred percent sensitive, especially oh, the, really? the serologic tests, the blood draw, the fit, the finger prick ones that the sketchy people were selling for a while on the internet, those right. are real. The but the real blood draw is good. No blood draw, they could do quantitative. So they see, they make sure you have a high enough IgG. But doesn't it matter, or do, I, I have no idea, to some degree, the timing of when it's done? Like if, if you were sick yes. and you're kind of better, but not totally better, and still kind of, you know, you have a drop of a little cough still, but you're much better. Um, will you, the antibody be positive? You should wait at least seven days before you try to get the antibody test. because you From may the time have, you're totally better. Yeah, because the good antibody tests are IgG tests, and it takes at least a week to get develop those. And so it does you no good. to. There's no point of testing for antibodies during an acute illness anyway. Right. Because, the, again, the way I always explain tests to people is what question are we asking with that test? So the antibody test is asking the question, do I have long-term immunity? It should not be asking, if you're asking the question, do I have coronavirus? You're doing the wrong test. You should be right. But so when you do these tests for people with, who are having a party, if they have it, you'll get it. You you feel that comfortable. So they have to understand it's not a hundred percent accurate. Right. They should still wear masks and distance if they can. So you're still telling them to do that? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's be- it's safer. It's something where like these people are probably going to do with this anyway. So tell me, since we're talking about um, back to back to Corona, um, silly observations and thoughts. Okay. One. What does N95 mean? Is there an N100? I don't know if there's an N100. Okay. Um, an N95 is the theoretically the safest mask to protect against small droplets. So that means tuberculosis. That means anything that's uh, spread through droplets. And so theoretically, yeah, it's supposed to screen out 95% of stuff, right? I think that's why it's called, that's why it's called an N95. So, and so my question is, is, and you may not know the answer and I don't, I meant to look it up before we talked, but you know, everybody wearing the schmata is a mask. You know, what N is that? I have you know? a, <laughs> made so much money selling masks. It's absurd. Yeah. Number one seller on Amazon. What's that? He's the number one seller of masks on Amazon. Re- like silly masks, right? Masks. Yeah, like cloth masks. Right. So, yeah. So, I, I, you know, I see all these people in the masks. And then there was the funny, like, uh, picture, you know, online of someone in a mask. And it's just an eye mask, you know. I love that. I'm wearing a mask. What are you talking about? Did you see that one or no? No, I saw someone dressed as the mask. You know, Jim Carrey. He like, oh, that's a good one too. Um, so my other, 
silly, silly questions about that are, I want to talk about driving. Like what, what are your thoughts on when you look next to you in the car next to you and someone's wearing their mask in the car? Well, that's obviously absurd, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I almost think we should tell patients not to wear a mask in the car. Because, you know, haven't you heard these episodes of, of oh. guy have, passing out, you know, from... Uh, Could happen. Whatever. And I, so my other question is... I, I'll tell you this, as an internist, because I see every range of human being walking to my office. Right. I have everything, you know, you see the mix. You see the person who's like triple... Gloved. Gloved, yeah. Opens the door to the bathroom in my office, takes one glove off, has two under there. Right, right. Um, to the person who doesn't care at all, and that, right. and that's what we're seeing out there. Right. But then the funny thing is, you see the patients come in with gloves and their mask, but they're constantly touching their face and they're touching everything with their gloves. And actually, there's a sign in in the hallway across from us in, in one of the offices saying, "Take off your gloves before you come in." Corral yeah. your hands, and then we'll give you a new pair of gloves. Yeah, which which makes That's sense because yeah. who knows what they're walking in with? Right. You were going to say something, Lauren? No, I was just curious. Like, did you have testing for your patients right away, or did you have to wait too? Because a lot of, or how does that work with concierge medicine? So obviously, we were all scrambling to get whatever we could get our hands on. I I actually got coronavirus myself in early March. Um, there's how still- sick. Um, so I was lucky. My first symptom was on a, on a Friday where, in which I had coverage on the weekend. So I wasn't going to see patients. Um, I was able to get tested through Cedars Monday because I basically told them I, you got, I got to know cause I can't see patients if I'm positive. So I got right. tested on the Monday. Obviously I stayed at home waiting results. It took seven days. So the following Monday, wow. I tested positive, but I didn't know. I mean, I assumed I had it the whole time. What symptoms did you have? Uh, the whole thing. Fever, very bad body aches, cough. For um, how many days? Loss of t- smell and taste. You lost smell and taste? I lost smell and taste for about a week and a half. I had the fevers probably three days and the body aches for like three days. And it was at the peak of the fear of, you know, the news and... right. The counter starting on CNN and um, were you worried at any point like hey I I may get uh, super sick and have to go to the ICU kind of thing did you ever no, feel that sick I never felt that sick I right. would say it was like similar to a flu I would say right I mean right. I'm like religiously work out so I work out four or five days a week I played soccer in college I'm in very good shape so I never felt short of breath if you say so yourself I work out a lot you know? yeah 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 no, okay. So I, I never felt short of breath. I did have a bad cough though. Right. But you made sure to work out while you were sick. I, tr- you know, it's funny. The first day I felt better, I rode the bike and did pushups and stuff. And then I felt awful the next day. Really? Were you popping Advil, Tylenol, whatever? Tylenol, yeah. It was uh, when we were still worried that Advil, it was like when we literally knew nothing. So there were right. rumors that Advil was making it worse and stuff like right. that. So you stayed away from that? Stayed away from that. Well, were people in your, did anyone in your office get sick too? No. Wow. And, and you have a whole staff, right? From me. Sorry? You mean, did they get sick from me? No. no, did they get sick from the same person that got you sick, I mean? No, I was the only person that got sick. Thanks. Gotcha. Wow. 
Yeah. So what are you um, telling your patients now? Like, are you telling them to just try to work from home as much as possible? Try not to go out to eat still since you're seeing like a spike in cases. So this is how I feel about it. So now that we have much, so then we knew nothing. So it was scary. I understood, you know, I understood why they closed the, the economy for a couple of weeks to get protective equipment, to give us time to figure out how deadly this thing is, figure out the groups that you had to protect, like the nursing homes, old people, et cetera figure out that people should, if they're in a multi-generational house, they shouldn't be anymore. They need to move. Grandma has to go live by herself. Can't if their children are there seeing their friends. So I had to like readjust life. But now we realize that if you're sort of, if you're under 60 and you don't have medical problems, yes, there are rare cases of getting really sick, but they're very rare. They are like exceedingly rare and they don't really talk about them enough i don't think yeah yeah i agree i agree you know if you look at the death rates so in the u.s we have you know i don't i don't know what the count this i stopped watching the cnn counter because yeah but however many they say we have now two million cases a hundred thousand dead so it's point you know two it's two percent or whatever but we know that we weren't testing people for so long so it's obviously less than that so let's say one percent but over half the deaths or three quarters of the deaths are people like over seven. And then all the people younger who are sick are most of, you know, again, there are there sporadic cases, you know, one in 10,000 of young, healthy people getting really sick. Sure. But that's the same one in 10,000 is the same likelihood as, you know, getting in a massive car crash in a year or all right. the other things that we just accept as a risk in society. And so to me, Everyone has to sort of see what their pre-infection risk would be. So if you're old, don't go outside. If you have diabetes that hasn't been controlled for 10 years, you should be careful. Um, If you're young and healthy, I understand people wanting to work. And I sort of think the economy needs to open. I really sort of do. Because I see it from the side where my diabetics... My other patients are too scared to come to the office. They're not getting checkups. I've had people with chest pain refuse to go to the ER because they're too scared. Wow, yeah. What's affecting... Do you have grandparents? Yeah. Are you seeing them? Have you seen them? My grandmother's 94. She'll kill me for saying this, but she fell during the coronavirus and broke a hip, was in the hospital, um, and my whole family wanted her to go home, but she couldn't walk, and I force them to let her go to the California rehab in Century City because yes, there's a risk of getting the virus, but if you send her home, she'll never walk again. She's 94. Right. We had to, you know, and thankfully she got through it. She's back home. She's walking right. walker. And are you seeing her? So again, so this is the thing, you know, if someone is very old, if someone's in their nineties, you know, you could make the argument, how likely are they to live till the end of coronavirus, till, till there's a vaccine. Right. So are you not going to see them for two years till there's a vaccine? Right. You may never see them again. You didn't answer my question. Yeah, I've been seeing her. Do well, you wear I, a mask? Do you wear a mask when I you see her? I wear a mask and I have the reassurance of knowing that I had coronavirus. And right, 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 right. Give it to her. And your other family members? Mostly not seeing her. Mostly not. Right. Based on your recommendation. I think the way that I see it, if someone's in their 70s, let's say, 
I would be very careful around them because there's more to lose. Right. It's a good point. Yeah. So one thing I think is, you know, as a surgeon, everybody, you know, the old people always are like, doc, I'm 90. Am I going to be okay? And what I tell, what I like to think is if you made it into 90, you're probably better off and healthier than a 70 or 80 year old, I think. And you're still frozen, right? Is he still frozen? Yeah. There's so much more I wanted to talk to him about. I know, me too, because he does preventative health. I mean, he does... And I also want to talk to him about his Instagram. I want to talk to him about his Instagram and stuff. I want to see... I wanted to talk to him about how he gets patients to actually have better habits. Yeah, I think he's texting me. Us. Did he text us? Mm -hmm. Well, he lost internet. So should we wrap it up? So thanks for joining us at Gross Anatomy. Uh, Thanks for joining us, everyone. We will have a part two. We had a little bit of uh, connectivity issues. Yes. So once we resolve that, hopefully we'll get back to doing this. Right, Lauren? Yes, because we have a lot more questions for Dr. Toll, who was so informative and helpful. um, But we want to get into a lot more. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Cohen. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Ms. Taylor. Bye. Bye. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Gross Anatomy and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can check out more episodes on the evolving sights, smells, and sounds of medicine. Gross Anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.